0: Today on episode number 256 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Paul Honstead shares about creating wicked students. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I have a partnership with the Association of College and University Educators AQ, and they bring me wonderful guests, including today's guest, Paul Honstead. AQ's courses and community site feature many teaching and learning's top experts, faculty developers, and practitioners, and they showcase evidence-based teaching practices. And I'll be linking in the show notes at episode 256 to the ways in which that Paul has contributed to AQ's work, and I'm excited to share more about him now. After 30 years in the classroom, Paul Honsted will become the founding director at the Center for Academic Resources and Pedagogical Excellence at Washington and Lee University in July 2019. He has worked with over four dozen colleges and universities in the U.S. and Asia to explore general education and pedagogical reform, and is a recipient of several teaching awards, including a 2013 State Council for Higher Education in Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award and the 2014 Case Carnegie Virginia Professor of the Year Award. He's authored several books, including General Education Essentials, and creating wicked students. Paul, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: I believe the first time I ever heard about you was actually by way of your book title, which I don't, you know, I don't like to pick favorites, but I gotta say it is among <laughs> I can say it's among my favorites, instantly caught my attention because this word wicked, which I was mentioning to you. That, that oh. comes up a lot for people I know from Boston, like Wicked Awesome. That was a big expression when I was in college, Wicked Awesome. I don't know if they still say that there. But instead, yeah. you, you called your book Creating Wicked Students. And I imagine we probably have to back into this. So should we first talk about other wicked things you've come across in terms of higher education?
1: Oh, in terms of higher education. Okay. Yeah. What, yeah. Is, what are <laughs> wicked
0: things in higher ed?
1: Well, it's intriguing. So I first came across the term when I was in Hong Kong. I was there as part of a Fulbright to help the region shift their university curriculum from a three-year to a four-year system. And I encountered a gentleman named Edmund Koh, and he was educated at Stanford University and then was an engineering professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And then when I met him, he was at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And he was talking about wicked problems that his uh, engineering students would encounter, problems where the dynamics were shifting, where the data was incomplete, where there was a pressing need to solve the problem, but you were doing it half-blind sometimes and uncertain of where things were going, but you still had to do something about it. And he Mm -hmm. said, you know, if if our engineering students are going to face these wicked problems, they better have wicked competencies. And, And coming away from that conversation, my thought was that we're all facing wicked problems, that every... Is so many of the the issues challenging us these days social media technology human interaction in a political uh, forum of how we get along with each other how we communicate with each other who we're communicating with our assumptions about each other all of that those are wicked problems the opioid crisis is a wicked problem education is a wicked problem politics is a wicked problem and my my basic theory is that we're going to face all of us you know to Use Edmund's words, if we're going to face wicked problems, we better have wicked competencies, all of us.
0: I'm so curious, was that part of their culture, that expression, or was he bringing it across from the U.S.? Is that something that...
1: Yeah, no, it's actually not, as far as I know, a phrase that came out of Hong Kong. My understanding of it is that it began in city planning. I'm sure I could track down the the actual citation for you. I've seen it, read it, but I don't have it right in front of me in the 70s and uh, the recognition in city planning that they were doing a very good job of preparing their students, except when their students got into the world, things were much more in flux and mm-hmm. much more dynamic. And then, as I understand it, engineers heard the term and thought, well, this describes perfectly what we have. So I believe it comes out of actually United States academic settings and recognitions of the, the difference between the sort of tame problems we face in the classroom and the wicked problems that people face in a dynamic world.
0: I'm going to take us on a tiny bit of a tangent, and I promise it will make sense in a second. But have you ever heard of the Milgram experiment where there were people who were being shocked in another room? And then the person who was delivering the shock, they kept saying, oh, no, it's okay. They're fine. They're fine. Don't worry about them. Just keep going. And they would they would say raise the level of the shock and then it's a psychology experiment so
1: it this just came up today
0: actually oh, you and I have weird connections like this. so how did yeah, it come up today
1: yeah, yeah yeah why did you bring that up
0: well so I think you might have a dog with you is that correct
1: I have a dog in my house.
0: I kept thinking I heard a little whimper of a dog, or I thought it was a bird. <laughs> I couldn't
1: decide. Uh, you no, know, the window's open, so you probably are hearing a bird. Oh, yeah. how
0: lovely! Anyway, I just yeah. have this this random. I feel like from getting to talk to you before we started to press record, I feel like you could mm-hmm. do this little <laughs> little little tangent with me. <laughs> thinking like, is this a test for me to see if someone's being harmed in your presence? I think
1: it's good. Here's the intriguing thing. You know that that initial study was just a baseline study, right? And that there was a whole series of studies that came after it with different variables?
0: I was not aware of that. In fact, I am I, more aware of that, that that study could never happen today because of some of the, right. the rules we have around research. But no, I did not know that.
1: Oh, no, they did it. I want to say they ran it somewhere between uh, 12 and 20, 20 different ways. You know, sometimes there was a scientist in the room. Sometimes there were two scientists in the room. Sometimes they could see the recipient of the shock. Sometimes they couldn't. Sometimes there was another non-scientist in the room.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, and I want to – and I don't have it real clear in my head. And, again, this part of this comes down to me for this conversation with dress code. <laughs> 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 daughter, they have this anonymous reporting system. And so one of the things I was going to suggest is that they make it a two-tier system that two people have to report the same person before they get called in for dress code. Because one of the later variations actually went down to and I can't remember if it it was that there were two scientists in the room and one was arguing for the shock and the other was arguing against the shock or if there was another participant in the room. But it dropped down to zero when that variable was present, the person that was being administering shock refused to do it. Isn't that intriguing? That
0: is super intriguing. Thank you for allowing me to go on that um, yeah. I, I suppose that we can somehow tie it back to wicked. We can tie yeah, it back to the word wicked. It. I am curious as you did because of course, wicked can have such negative connotations. Right. did you what kind of thought went into? so So much of the challenge with us in higher ed is being disparaging toward our students right. and- you know right. trying to shift it to thinking of them as really bringing right. assets with them into college and beyond and so what did you what kind of thoughts did you put into that as far as using the word
1: You know it's sort of funny because I am the, the son of a Lutheran minister, so you would think that I would have put a lot of thought into that word, <laughs> but it didn't it didn't bother me at all because at the core of it, what it means. The connotation I could see having a very negative impact, but at the core of it, the way this is defined, it is, it's a powerful student. It's a student who can walk into a situation that is dynamic, that is in flux, that is fluid, that is challenging, uh, even a little frightening, and they're capable of stepping back and examining the situation and approaching it in a thoughtful, deliberate, productive way. So by the time I wrote the book, I'd had that term in my head for six years. So the connotations for me were completely positive. It had to do with agency. It had to do with thoughtfulness. It had to do with understanding that you have a right to step into a problematic world and be a part of the solution.
0: Yeah, I had a very positive association with it the instant that I saw it, like I mentioned. And I'm wondering if our definition of that word, Wicked, has changed. It would be interesting to know. I saw the musical Wicked for the first time just recently in the last six months or so. And of course, the character there playing the Wicked Witch, you know, well, spoiler alert. (laughs) Let let, let, let me just say that um, characters that we think we understand from just catching you know glances of them we they're often more right. much more complex than we would ever let on and i so I, I was very intrigued i wonder if that's part of it where that that definition really is changing because I, I i didn't necessarily like i would th- think it's not the same thing as evil you know wicked just has a totally right. different connotation
1: right. to it there is a connection to the to the wicked witch because there is for me implicit in it mm-hmm. a fearlessness courage about a you know this is complex this is messy this is hard But I'm okay stepping into it. I'm okay looking into it. I'm okay being part of the solution. And good Lord, in the world we live in now, we need this desperately.
0: One of the things that has been intriguing me for some time now is this idea that before we can begin inviting our students to learn, there's actually a lot we have to do to help them unlearn Yes. What kinds of things have you noticed in your work that really come up for needing to help our students unlearn? And and also, I suppose we can, what we need to unlearn too. There's a lot of that.
1: Oh, no, exactly. Yeah, no. So let's come back to the, the what we need to unlearn. Cause I think that's a really great question. Yeah. So my my background, yeah, I have a PhD in Victorian literature, but I was at Ohio State University and sort of fell in love with composition and rhetoric when I was there. So I've really done very little with literature and, a, and I do consider myself a writing specialist. So one of the things we need to un or teach our students to unlearn is is simply the algorithmic approaches to writing that they are taught in high school in order to be prepared for standardized testing. You know, the five paragraph theme is uh, the obvious villain, but a lot of it is sort of the thinking behind it, which is not just that, there's, here's a structure, but the structure is all there is to it. It's not about complex thought, you know, abortion should be legal or illegal for these three reasons. And um, none of which are particularly developed and none of which are particularly complex. So if we're going to get students used to complex problems, that idea that there's, there's a one paragraph answer to something or three one-paragraph answers to a complex problem. That's one of the things we have to unteach. One of the things I find intriguing is that when I'm when I'm working with honors students or high-performing students or students who have achieved or been very successful with the, the traditional sort of system of testing and grading, you know, in other words, straight-A students. They struggle more with wickedness and complexity than the B minus student or the C plus student, and sometimes that's simply because they've become risk averse because the grade seems to be the determining factor. the, The determining factor, whereas for Other students, they're actually kind of intrigued with the problem and they have a little bit of that cocky wickedness, (laughs) sort of sauntering swagger, and they will take on a wicked problem and take risks and sometimes come up with better, more thoughtful, more creative, more out-of-the-box solutions than the the brightest students in the class or the highest performing students in the class is a better way to
0: put it. A challenge that so often comes up from people when we start to open up these ideas of, in, in some cases, it comes up of having, you know, getting rid of the rubrics for something and just letting people create. And so when yeah. we talk about not having as many parameters and just seeing what happens, a lot of it is, well, well then they won't try very hard. Right. And I, I, also, I think this is really interesting because I think that part of me still believes that, too. And yet when uh-huh. I, when I experiment with it, I find that I am most often quite wrong. And then in the occasions where I'm right, it doesn't really matter. Like, why do I, why do I need yeah. to act like everything that I might, you know, invite someone to, to create with me? Like it, like it has to be the most important thing to them in their lives. Well, so I just, well. yeah. Did you think about that as well as you were, I mean, you've written more than one book. Has this come up for you as well? This, this idea of the fear of what will happen to their motivation if we try to do this more?
1: It's funny, it hasn't. I I wasn't thinking about it sort of, I didn't have it at the forefront of my mind as I was writing either of the books. But I know that my thinking has been shaped a lot by irreverent students, by students who have more creative ways of approaching the world, who take more risks and you it's interesting that you mentioned rubrics because i had one student in particular and i work i have a i have a complex relationship with rubrics Um, i recognize their value i recognize how they can be used very productively to communicate to students this is what i'm looking for and we have to communicate to students what we're looking for, particularly in a wicked context.
0: Yeah,
1: But I've always just kind of felt like every time I use them, I'm sort of manipulating the boxes to get where I want to get with the student's grade or, you know, in, or in terms of motivating them. And I remember one year I thought, well, okay, this is a year where I'm going to use these rubrics. And I had them sitting by my desk and I was doing paper conferences. And at the end of every paper conference, I would turn to the student and say, okay, well, just so you kind of know, here's a rubric that I'm going to use to be grading the paper. And if I were to mark you right now on this draft, here's kind of where I put you in the thing. And and there was one student where I sort of began by saying, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with rubrics, and she is of Jamaican descent and was raised, I want to say by a single mother, but I'm not entirely sure, and was a little bit of a free spirit and she, the minute I said, I don't know if you're familiar with Rubik's. And she goes, well, I know I'm much more than is in those little boxes right there. <laughs> <laughs> and I all but picked them up and just put them in the garbage at that point, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, and but at the same time, I will say that there are, we do know that there is that constraint can be valuable for creativity i mean i work in creative writing and any poet will tell you that there's sometimes power to having to work in a sestina form or a sonnet form and that it pushes you to sort of shape things within these tight confines and and adapt in some ways that maybe you wouldn't if you could have anything you wanted and do anything you wanted so I don't know that I felt fear about opening the box too wide, but I do know that we need to find ways to allow students to take risks. Yeah. If we, everything we have in our class fits in a little box, and everything we do in our class has a grade attached to it, they're not prepared for when they step into a complex world, a messy world a world where none of the problems look like anything they faced in the books or in their classes.
0: I also have a complex relationship with rubrics and I I have lots of different feelings about it. But one of the things that I just absolutely think we all need to resist is Mm -hmm. this notion that I'll know it when I see it.
1: Yeah. Because rather
0: than freeing them up for the kind of creativity and the messiness that you're describing, instead we're expecting them to read our minds and they mm-hmm. do not yeah. have the same right. educational yeah. background or perspective. I mean, it's, I just think that, that that is not fair to to yeah. our students. And so that, as far as sometimes I use them, sometimes I don't, I think I should use them less in terms of just this, if, if it is more of a creative type of a thing. And some people right. have put together some wonderful rubrics for creativity yeah. Like AACNU and U has some nice ones. So it's not like I think that they're all bad, but I, I think yep. we should use them when they're helpful and don't use them when they're not helpful, but don't yep. expect people to read our minds and, and know yep. that we're going to know when we see it, whatever it is.
1: <laughs> well, one of my favorite techniques, and I, I don't think she's the only one who does this, but I have a colleague, Hannah Robbins who's in the mathematics department at Roanoke college. And the way she approaches it is that she designs a rubric with the students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes sense to me because if we want them to know what's in our heads and we want them to know what we're after, well, simply handing them a rubric isn't enough. Here, read five hundred words that I've crammed into tiny boxes for you, <laughs> and then you'll understand what I'm thinking for. But if you have a you're having a conversation about it and creating it together. They're going to understand what you're after. And they will also have a greater sense of, you know, this idea of authority that I talk about a lot in the book, you know, that, of being capable of authoring something, of, of having enough of a brain to say something that matters and to, to understand, to be part of this conversation about how they should be graded.
0: One of the areas that you explore and have some prescriptions for is this day-to-day pedagogies. What can you tell us about that?
1: I can tell you that the editor didn't like the word pedagogy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Someone on Twitter was really not a big fan of pedagogies the other day too. And was like, what's going on with that word?
1: (laughs) I I mean, here's here's what it comes down to. So if we want students to have the authority, a, a sense of authorship an ability to walk into the world and not just, you know, be a part of the world, but also to kind of create the newness of the world. I mean, the world, Is changing every single day. This is obvious, right? And and if we want our students to be full full participants in citizenship and in business and in nonprofits and in politics They have to be part of that authoring of new things and new ways of thinking about things and new solutions to problems And so if that's what we're after in the end Then we should be giving them the kinds of projects and the kinds of work and the kinds of exam questions In our classes that engage them in those ways where it's not necessarily about, well, there is a right and a wrong. Well, sometimes there is, and they need to know that. But sometimes how that right and wrong is applied, how that content is applied is very complex and very messy and very dynamic. And then my my other argument is, okay, if we have a messy, complex world, we should give a messy, complex questions and messy, complex papers in the classroom. But if we're going to be giving them those kinds of exam questions and those kinds of final projects, they need time to practice because that's changing the rules. And this is something that alludes to a question you were talking about earlier, where you know, the rules that they're learning so often, not all the time, but so often coming out of secondary education is that, you know, the the correct answers are at the back of the book and there are right and wrong answers. Well, yes, there are sometimes and yes, there are not sometimes. But if what I'm saying is that, listen, there are variations of what is accurate, variations of what is a good idea. Here's a complex problem. There's going to be some solutions that are 100% really good on it, some solutions that are 85% pretty good on it. Um, if, we're going to, if we're going to change those rules, we better create day-to-day interactions with our students and practices in the classroom and allow them to practice with these changed rules and these changed dynamics, you know. I mean, I don't think that surprises anybody. You don't you don't throw a question on the final exam that they've never seen before yeah. or never yeah. seen in any form.
0: Yeah. And, and some of that practice, too, is practice because right. so much of what they get in other parts of their education it, are these things that have right answers. Yep. I, I need to have practice just yeah. loosening the reins a bit for those times when there is not one correct answer. That's something yeah. that, you, that can't be, you know, midterm final, good, you you got it right. or you didn't. Right. That really right. requires a lot of practice.
1: Yeah, and I think this does relate to something that you mentioned earlier in that it asks us to change how we perceive who we are in the classroom and what our role is in the classroom. I mean, I'm, I'm a very, very old man. So uh, I grew up, you know, with a system, so many of my instructors stood at the front of the room and delivered information. And I carried that model of what it was to be a professor in my head for a long time. And and there is a place for that. And lecture can be very powerful and very effective. And content is crucial. We, we can't ignore that there are some situations, there's, there's some information that is either factually correct or factually not correct. But... We need to also recognize that on some level, we're not just the deliverer of truth. We are also the coach who helps them get through these muddy situations. That means playing a slightly different role. It means allowing them to mess up and creating space in our syllabus for them to mess up. It means admitting very often that worry we ourselves are not quite sure. And that can be that can be a little scary, both because of the models we carry in our head of what it means to be a professor, but also because of things like evaluations. You know, if they come in thinking the teacher knows everything, and they're going to deliver that everything to me. And then we say, actually, no, we're not entirely sure. But that can feel a little risky for us, too.
0: For my students' final project in my business ethics class, they created games. In two cases, they created board games. And in one case, it was a Jeopardy game that they projected. And so we played them together as our as our final time to get together. And (laughs) one of of the one of the games required that we were in pairs, and it was an uneven. So I played the game with the student. Uh And (laughs) one of the questions, I should have known this answer. And for the life of me, I just couldn't think of it, the student couldn't Uh think of it. And uh-huh. it, I mean, it just came up so often in the class. But how could I not remember that? <laughs> and, and it is hard because they were shocked. One of the students, he's bold faced, like, <coughs> I can't believe you didn't know that. You didn't know that. And I thought like, oh, this is even more embarrassing. And one yeah. of the other students said, that's how I feel when I take a test. Uh-huh. I'm sitting there and I know that I know this but I just oh. can't get it to come. And I thought like, this is healthy modeling, this is healthy modeling, but it was really hard. It's hard yeah. to be in that place. But I think really healthy for me too, to have experienced that, you know, that embarrassment and that feeling of panic yeah. of, Oh my gosh, I should know this.
1: Well, yeah. I know that. Yeah. I mean, that, to be reminded about what it's like to feel sort of powerless. sometimes. I the, mean, that's a very, yeah.
0: The other thing that was interesting that they brought up was that they were saying, well, in, if this case, They said, if I had heard the guy's name first, I could have told you that he was the creator of this philosophy. But because we started with a philosophy, they couldn't back up. And you were talking about practice earlier if that kind of recall needs to happen both ways, then the practice better happen both ways too. Yep. And so, yep. I thought yep. that that was uh, interesting. It was it, my failure in that moment generated some really good discussion around that, and also, of course, points out the weakness of tests. You know that we're not always able to convey the knowledge right. that we already have right. on That's those kinds thinking, of
1: in the, in the last year, I've had two people say to me, "What do you say to professors who don't want to give up?" the sage on the stage approach or the, the, the being the person in the room, the all-knowing person in the room. And my response to both of them was the same, which is, is if, you really, if you sit down with a bunch of professors and you say, what's the best moment you've ever had in your teaching? Very seldom is it going to be the time I gave that lecture where I nailed it perfectly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Very often it's going to be them telling a story about the student in the class who couldn't get it couldn't get it, couldn't get it, and then turned and handed it, you know, to the professor, you know, a paper or a project or solving a problem or doing an oral, oral presentation with this look on their face like they can't believe they, they just did it, <laughs> you know. I mean, that's, that's rewarding. That's what we teach, to be in the classroom and have that student suddenly stand up and go, I, I get this. I got it now, <laughs> you know.
0: That whole idea of thinking back to the best moments in our classes, yeah, I can't imagine. It's I nailed the performance aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's why most of us went into this. <laughs>
1: so yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Before we get to the recommendations segment for today's episode, I wanted to take a moment and thank the sponsor for today's episode, and that is Text Expander. They have been sponsoring the podcast now for more than a year, and if you've been listening for that time, you know what a big fan I am. You know that I consider it an essential tool that saves me a lot of time so that I can be freed up for the kind of stuff I really want to be doing, engaging with students and people close to me. Text Expander is all about saving time with typing, and if there's something that I type often, whether it's something that is longer that I don't want to have to retype or just something that I don't remember very well, like my work phone number is one I just notoriously don't remember, I essentially program it, but it's super easy to do. I just type in what they call a snippet, a few letters, a few characters, and it automatically expands then to be this larger segment of text, or as I said, something I don't remember very well. And they recently upgraded and have a new visual editor for snippets. And so when I have fill-ins, maybe it's the date or putting someone's first name in there, all kinds of ways I can make it even smarter. There's a a new visual editor that just makes it that much easier to see what's there and to make any changes that I want to. And there also is a team version of text expander. So if I want to have this within a group of people, a department, what have you, it'll help us all be able to save that time and also have that professionalism and consistency that we're looking for and if you go to the link that's in the show notes today, if you go to textexpander.com slash podcast, you can get 20% off your first year and please let them know that we sent you over there that that you heard about them from Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to give recommendations. And I recently got to go to this event called Imaginology and it was for Kids, families, I suppose. I mean, people of all ages, kids of all ages. And right, they yeah. had all these different exhibits. It was on a fairgrounds by where we live. So there, there's a farm on the fairgrounds. And they had the uh-huh. kids got to see that. And one of the things they had was just this open play area. And I forgot the name of the organization, but I'm going to put it in the show notes because I can ask my husband. I know he took a picture of their information. So I'll put the name of this nonprofit. But the nonprofit, they had brought in just all this stuff for the kids to use and build and create and imagine they had cardboard and tires and I didn't even, I never thought of this as something kids would enjoy playing with, but the kinds of, they're not headphones, but the things you put over your ears to protect you from
1: like earmuffs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then they had, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And then, but as they came in, there were rules. And so I'm just going to read the kids oath that they take and then I'll read the one for the one's bringing their kids there. So the kid's oath, I promise to take care of this place, take care of this stuff, and take care of each other. That means stuff on stuff, not stuff on people. Uh And I love the simplicity of that and the invitation that it is to, you know, be here, but you know, take care of the place that we're creating here. And the adult's oath is I promise to let the kids lead the play and uh-huh. encourage the four C's, creativity, communication, collaboration, and critical thinking. And my son and daughter just had the best time there. Just free play. Just go do whatever you want. It was really, really great fun. And I just was inspired by this. And we'll encourage people to take a look. I've got pictures that I'll put in the recommendation so you can have a look and also uh, link to that nonprofit once I figure out what the heck its name was. It uh-huh. they, were, they were great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And think about how that contrasts with our, with our syllabus, mm-hmm. syllabus. Yes. Right? Which is rules about how you can fail yes. if you don't do the right things. <laughs> so. Absolutely.
0: But, Paul, yeah. what do you have to recommend for us today?
1: Well, this is interesting. I've been thinking about this for a while. And, and a, little, a little background is last year I had a sabbatical. And after 21 years as a professor at that point, I got the Wicked Students book done pretty early in the sabbatical. And I was working on a novel. I've got a crazy idea for a vampire detective, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I really spent a lot of the year reading. And it was the first time I'd been reading where I, I, I read, I probably read more books in that one year than I've read. I had read in the previous two decades, you know, and part of that is raising kids and part of that is having the job and commuting and all these things. Well, and then that connects to this other idea. I was, I had some students teaching a class and they were talking about the amygdala and they were talking about how the amygdala takes information very quickly. And then, then it's basically the fight or flight place. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking about David Kolb and James Zoll and their model for deep learning, which, you know, begins with, information input, concrete input, and then reflection, and then hypothesis, and then action or testing of the hypothesis. And it's on a circle. So, you know, one leads to the other and it can be nonlinear and, you know, but here's where I'm going with all of this. I've been thinking a lot about what I call the necessary pause. The way so often our students come in, we give them information, they take it, and then they hand it back to us in exactly the same form. And what we know is that that speed doesn't deepen their learning. It doesn't really mean that they've taken the information and owned it. So I've been thinking about the ways that sometimes asking students to write about biology using visual forms or write about literature by creating a video, that change of genre forces them to pause <laughs> and to think okay, how do I translate this from one form to another? What videos have I seen before? How might I do this? And I'm thinking both about how it works in the classroom and how that necessary pause is going to deepen their learning. But then I'm also thinking about for the rest of us, and this is where my mention about reading last year on my sabbatical comes into play, how much I, I, I learned to pause again, to not just get something in and then turn it around and put it back out. I was reading more carefully. So mm. I guess I, my recommendation is that people pause more. And if you need some help to pause, I would strongly recommend a series of light detective novels by Alan Bradley about a young 11-year-old chemist named Flavia DeLuce who spends half the time trying to solve the mystery and the other half the time trying to figure out how to poison her sisters. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's my recommendation I did, uh,
0: I did not think that's where we were gonna land there
1: I you know <laughs> lie on the couch give yourself because we know this right we know that when you know how many times people say well i'm in the shower then suddenly the idea came to me well that's because you're not trying to to move so quickly give yourself time to reflect connect it to past experience and ideas and neuronal networks and then move forward and lying on the couch reading a book that's a great way to pause so that's my that's my is that too wordy is that too much i'm sorry no
0: <laughs> i totally love it and you're reminding me a little bit I, it's like i know better than the story i'm about to tell you but it's nice when somebody gives us a little nudge and that yeah. is that i was a little stressed out about this chapter i was supposed to be writing and you know the deadlines looming and i'm a person who likes to hit or exceed my deadlines <laughs> and so my husband said what are you writing the chapter on and i said i don't know and he said <laughs> Go look right now what that chapter is on. And then even if you don't have time to work on it in the next few days Mm -hmm. until closer to the deadline, at least your brain can be working on it. And I thought that was such good advice. And I took it and, and I know that, but you know, every once in a while we need that reminder.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, because sometimes, you know, we, we made it in this profession because we perform high and fast Mm -hmm. We quickly. We meet our deadlines. We publish, you know, we exceed expectations, And boy, (laughs) good. (laughs) But (laughs) pause, having it there, letting your brain mull it, give it some time. You're going to come up with better ideas. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, did it work?
0: Yeah, it absolutely did. And then when I sat down to do it, I just, it's some of the fastest writing that I've done just because I had been working on it mentally all that time. And then I got to really, excellent. A lot more focused. Yeah. Good. Paul, thank you so much for investing your time in this community and just sharing your expertise. And it's just been such a delight getting to know you. And I hope this is just the beginning. It's, it's great being in community with you.
1: My pleasure. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I hope we talk again soon.
0: It was so fun to get to have this conversation with Paul Honstead. Thank you, Paul, so much for being on the show and for allowing me to go on Uh, a couple, maybe just one little nutty tangent, but it sure was fun to do it with someone who's willing to improvise improvise with me. So thank you for that, Paul. Thanks to all of you for listening. I sure do treasure this community. It's episode 256. And I've been doing this for five years now. And it's been an absolute joy every single week, rain or shine, sometimes a day earlier, sometimes a day later, just because of a holiday, but I haven't stopped. And it's been because of you. It's been because of the people that come on the show to have these conversations. And it's also been a lot of you telling me how they've had an impact on you. So thanks for letting me know that whether you send me a tweet or however you get in touch, it just brings me absolute joy. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.